0: Growing up, my dad was my pastor, and so over the course of my childhood, I would get to know the kids of some of the other pastors in our denomination. There was a kind of natural bond growing up knowing other, other pastors' kids, or PKs as we would always call ourselves. Well, as time went on, I began to lose touch with one particular friend, but it was while I was in college that I saw him post on Facebook a bit of a critique of the church. This is what he said. I'm getting so sick of Christianity and church and everything in general. I'm just sick of it. Faith is a personal relationship between you and God, not between you, God, and a church. The church is supposed to be there to encourage you and keep you accountable, not to judge and condemn you for every stupid thing that they think is wrong and they don't agree with. Now, I wouldn't say that I agree 100% with his understanding of the interaction between our individual faith and that of the uh, Christian, community of, of believers. But growing up in a similar context, um, I can certainly relate to some of what he's feeling. When you grow up in a successful family, whatever your defini- definition of successful may be, um, you're almost always guaranteed to grow up with this feeling of needing to live up to a certain expectation. I felt that way at times as a pastor's kid. I've had friends feel pressured to enter into family businesses that they weren't excited about, passionate about. And certainly, this friend of mine was feeling the weight of high expectations and feeling incredibly discouraged by the response that he got by not living up to those expectations. So, that's one story, which took place a little over 10 years ago. I'm now going to share a more current interaction that I've had with somebody who felt similarly. A couple of months ago, I answered the city church phone, and normally, if it's not a local number, we expect to hear some sort of pre-recorded message trying to sell us Google search optimization, or I think we've maybe won uh, four or five Marriott resort uh, vacations. Um, But on this particular occasion, this was a call from a real person who randomly searched online for a church to call and happened to find our number. This person has no affiliation with City Church. He lives three hours outside of Minneapolis. And outside of an act of God, there is no reason that I could explain as to how he ended up calling our office. And to be completely honest, these are the types of situations in pastoral ministry that I dread. As an introvert in general, I'm not all that fond of talking to anybody on the phone, even people that I know well. But seeing as I happened to be the only person on staff in the office at the time, I was stuck. As it turns out, it was probably one of the best phone conversations that I've ever had with a stranger. Not that that's happened very often. But it turns out that this guy was a musician and a Christian. But he was struggling to understand how so many Christians around him could only see his failures. He confessed to me that he had made mistakes in the past... Um, that he had previously struggled with alcohol. And after many years of sobriety, he was still pegged as the drunk. Either that or he was forced into this role as the poster child who needed to go and fix the lives of the drunks in his current church community. Whichever response that he got, this man felt like he was being categorized by his shortcomings. No matter where he turned, he was reminded of his failure. This was a person who needed a reminder of God's grace. The book of Ephesians is a letter that was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, a Greek city located in modern day Turkey. What's interesting about this particular letter is that unlike some of Paul's other writings that we have in the Bible, this letter appears to be more general, meaning he isn't writing necessarily in response to a certain circumstance, which is often the case in many of his letters. In fact, the tone of this one is less personal. It reads more like a long sermon. And given the tone and impersonal nature to the letter, it would appear that it was likely one that was delivered not only to the church in Ephesus, but to churches throughout all of Asia. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It had a population of over 300,000 people. It was a trading port and cultural hub. Earlier in his ministry, Paul had spent several years in Ephesus where he was initially well-received. But because the local economy was so dependent on pagan religious practices, his favor in the community started to wane. And thus his time, his stay there, would eventually come to an end. This letter was written by Paul likely in early 60, 62 AD. And it's written just a few years, likely during house arrest a couple of years before he was martyred. There are two major themes in this book. The first is that Jesus has reconciled all of creation to God. And the second is that Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. These deeds were accomplished through the working of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and are recognized and received by faith alone through grace. In light of this, Paul argues that Christians are to lead lives that are a fitting tribute of gratitude to God. We've already heard the passage read to us this morning. Our series is titled, One New People. Three words that we believe highlight the overarching theme of Paul's letter. And each week, as we work our way through the text, we've titled each message with an additional three words. Again, words that emphasize what Paul is writing about. This morning is titled, One Chosen Family. And so for the rest of our time together, I'm going to walk through each of these themes. I'm actually going to start first by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Many Bibles have titled these 10 verses, or subtitled these verses, From Death to Life. And in this text, Paul reminds us of the severity of sin, but points quickly to the good news that we have a Savior who offers us life. Here again, these words um, from Ephesians 2. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, All of us also lived among them at once, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul desires his readers, both Jewish and Gentile, to remember that without God, there is only the enslavement of sin and its ensuing destruction and death, both physically and spiritually. Paul here takes a moment to step back and remind us of what God desires for us and has done for each and every one of us. For many people, sin has been absorbed into a misunderstanding of grace. There are two extreme competing views that I think play a dangerous role in how we think about the relationship between sin and grace. The first is overdoing the emphasis on sin. A result of placing too much emphasis on sin makes it very easy for an overriding spirit of legalism to arise which forces the spirit of grace and mercy and love out of the picture. We spend so much time focusing on sin that we establish a list of rules to live by, a checklist of how to earn favor from with God from God and with from others. And the uh, it's it's an issue that causes us to then lose sight of our need for God's grace because we're working so hard in other areas. The other result is that we beat ourselves down so much that it causes us to no longer believe that grace even exists. However, the opposite extreme can also be damaging. It can be possible to focus on grace too much. Yes, we do need to know that God's grace is greater than any sin, However, if we talk about grace without talking about sin, we can easily mistake God's grace for a license to live any way that we want. That as long as one believes in grace, then what one does in the flesh, sees in the flesh, or lives out in the flesh does not matter. This is one of the reasons why Paul does not want us to lose sight of either grace nor sin. He wants his readers to know of God's plan of rescuing, redeeming, and restoring creation back into his image, a plan that was put in place because of humanity's sin, a plan to combat the reality that when humanity sinned, an evil was unleashed, not only in the hearts and minds of humans, but upon all of creation as well. This is why we see in this passage that Paul spends so much time speaking about the present age and the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that works among people whose lives consist of disobeying God. Paul wants us to be aware that something cosmic happened in the garden that affected both Jew and Gentile and all of creation. See, Paul is trying to help us get a truer picture of ourselves. He wants us to understand that it's not some accident of nature that has caused humanity to become broken. Paul wants us to understand it is not something that can be fixed through education or moralistic living. He wants us to understand that this is not something that can be taken care of by possessing more money or possessing more power. But he also doesn't leave us in a pool of despair. Instead, immediately after giving us a clear picture of where humanity is without God, Paul wants us to rejoice in God's amazing grace, and he points us to the cross. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is a freeing verse because it speaks freedom and salvation without any cost to us. Even though we might be dead in our disobedience, we are made alive by faith in the work of Christ. God came down in Jesus to rescue, redeem, and restore us to be his image bearers of holiness and righteousness. God came down in Jesus. We who were once dead in our sins have now been made alive in grace. It is Paul's understanding that what happened in and through Jesus can happen in all of us who believe in Jesus as Messiah. Jesus has been installed in all of his glory and so too will we be raised in his glory. When I think about this relationship between sin and grace, I can't help but think about story that has helped shape the way I think about planning a worship service. Now, if you were at the annual meeting a few years ago, this story might sound a little familiar. But two years ago at the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, Ed Catmull, who's the president of Pixar and Disney Animation, said something that resonated deeply with me. And I think to some extent it shares the heart behind how I think about corporate worship. When asked about the purpose behind art, Catmill responded, art isn't about drawing. It's about learning to see. And that's how I like to think about worship. It's not just about singing. It's not just about hearing a sermon. It's about learning to see. It's about learning to see the world through the eyes of God. It's about learning to see God as the creator of all things. It's about learning to see ourselves as his creation learning to see our imperfections, our failures, and our sin, and seeing a God who loves us and forgives us through the sacrifice of Christ. Music has always been an outlet for me to express myself, but especially growing up, I found that a lot of my understanding of who God is was learned through the lyrics of a hymn. For me, that reality makes every moment that we gather together critical, The words that we sing teach, the Bible, the sermon, the prayers are all formative and help shape the way in which we see. And it's my hope and prayer that week in and week out, our worship services will remind us that we as humanity have a great need and that need is met in one Savior. Now going back to chapter 1, We see from Paul a hymn of praise in which he refers to God's chosen people. He starts this section by recounting all the wonderful things that God has done. Two interesting aspects of this passage before we dive in. The first is that the original Greek of this text, the entire section, verses 3 through 14, are one sentence. 202 words, the longest sentence recorded in the New Testament. One writer comments, it's as if Paul is so captivated with adoration and gratitude, he forgets to breathe. Paul is in such awe of God's love, and he gives us a glimpse into the triune mystery of the Father's eternal plan. Jesus' implementation of that plan and the Holy Spirit's work at bringing that plan to fruition in the life of God's chosen people. Now the words chosen, election, or predestination stir up many theological debates about the interaction between the sovereignty of God and the role of human free will. There are well-respected theologians on both sides of the coin. You've got John Calvin on one extreme, you've got John Wesley on the other, and lots of others falling somewhere in between. At City Church, we believe in the sovereignty of God, that he is sovereign over all things and that in his sovereignty, God has given us free will. With that said, how do we tackle this concept of our chosenness, being predestined, as Paul indicates in this letter? The key word here in the text is the word chosen. As I mentioned before, this text is a hymn of praise, and in it, Paul is using a Jewish literary form known as the bracha or blessing. And in this blessing, Paul begins by giving thanks to God, which is indeed his main goal. But another purpose he has in this text is to encourage Gentile Christians, meaning the Christians that were not Jewish converts, reminding them that God has given them every spiritual blessing to them as well. Paul is saying to them, You weren't added at the 11th hour. Rather, you were part of God's plan from the beginning. That's what makes this word chosen so significant. See, to the Jewish reader, the word chosen would certainly elicit from the Old Testament the notion of Israel, the idea that the notion of Israel was God's chosen people. And so, what Paul is doing here, he isn't speaking about individual election or individual predestination. He's comparing the Gentiles' election with that of the Israelites. He's saying that this was part of God's plan. And this actually is something quite remarkable coming from Paul. Because prior to Paul's conversion, he was a well-known Jewish leader and persecutor of Christians and the Greeks. You would think that Paul, being a Jewish convert to Christianity, would be less inclined to consider the Gentile Christians on equal footing. But Paul says no, You were not an afterthought. You were chosen from the beginning. And so to Paul, this idea of election and specifically the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom is evidence of God's extravagant love for all of humanity. And because of this, Paul sees both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians on equal footing. And in fact, he calls them to be a community that is united in Christ He calls them to be a family. Later on in chapter two, we'll see Paul call out Christians to be reconcilers. John will speak more about that in the coming weeks. But you may recall in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, he writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Throughout this point of time in history, there are many instances in which Paul is writing to these communities that are experiencing division. And they're experiencing this division for a variety of reasons. For some communities, it was leaders adding stipulations or rules in order to be accepted into their community. For others, it was a disagreement among leaders. And for others still, it was arguments on whose teaching they preferred to follow. But time and time again, Paul makes it very clear that we are one in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything, but it does give us a common purpose, We all have a purpose, something that motivates us individually and corporately. Paul closes this section of chapter 2 in verse 10 by saying, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul concludes here by continuing this idea of chosenness, saying that we are God's handiwork. We have been created and prepared to do good works. In our previous sermon series, we spent some time looking at how to be good friends, how to be good spouses, parents, employees, among other things. And in each of these aspects of life, we are interacting with others. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Everything that Paul is writing here certainly applies to us individually, but he is writing to a community. It's written to a church family. The gospel forms us into a community We're not flying solo. And so as we continue to study this book, let's do it from the lens of not just who we are as individuals, but who we are as a community. The things that Paul is reminding us of in this text are some of the most simplistic aspects of Christianity, but are also the things that can be the hardest to believe and the hardest to live out. That our salvation has been taken care of Christ, that we don't have to earn it. And as a result, that we are to extend grace. Paul is reminding us that as recipients of grace, that we are to be a people that extend grace to others. In my introduction this morning, I shared with you the story of two individuals who were so beaten down by the feeling of guilt that they received by their community. Let that not be true of us. Yes, we need to recognize sin for what it is and hold one another accountable for our actions. But at the same time, we can't be people who continually beat down on the broken. The people I shared about earlier, they knew full well of their brokenness. They knew full well of their shortcomings and they were reminded of it day after day by people that were called to love and encourage them. There will be a time where each of us need to experience grace. And there will be a time where we will have the option to give grace or to give judgment. Let us be a people that recognizes that we have been granted grace. And out of an overflow of gratitude, be a people that extends that grace to those around us. We have one Savior. We have been chosen. We are a family. Let us pray. All glorious God, we give you thanks. In your son, Jesus Christ, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You chose us before the world was made to be your holy people without fault in your sight. You adopted us as your children in Christ. You have set us free by his blood. You have forgiven our sins. You have made known to us your purpose to bring heaven and earth into unity in Christ. You have given us your Holy Spirit, the seal and pledge of our inheritance. All praise and glory be yours. For the riches of your grace, for the splendor of your gifts, and for the wonder of your love. Amen.